His mercy is unfailing. His arms, a fortress for the weak. Let faith arise. Let faith arise. I want to say good afternoon. I believe it's afternoon already and praise the Lord Amen. and praise the Lord again. Amen. What a privilege it is to be able to share the word of God this afternoon over the internet. It's amazing how what in the hands of the enemy that has been used so effectively for evil in the hands of God can become an instrument of blessing to the church of Christ at this time when movement and gathering has been limited this morning, this vessel is a broken vessel before the Lord, asking just the same way that he can use the internet for his good, that he'll use this broken vessel for his good this morning. And even though I know Pastor Peter has prayed for me, I want us to pray once again, even as we get ready to uh, get into the word. The word of God in Psalms 119 and verse 130, this time in the Passion Translation says, break open your word within me until revelation light shines out. Those with open hearts are given insight into your plans. And so, Father, this morning I pray for us, all of us, as we hear your word, that you would break open your word within us, Lord, until your revelation light shines out, that our hearts would be open so that you would give us insight into your plans, dear Lord. We thank you and we bless you because we know you hear us. In Jesus' name we pray. This morning we are going to continue, or this afternoon we are going to continue with our study of the book of Hebrews. And today we will be considering Hebrews chapter 11. The title of our, uh, our message today is The Faith That Conquers. And I know that it's a long chapter, but we are going to read it because the word of God says that all scripture is God-breathed. And it is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correct, correct, uh, correcting and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So I'll ask us to open our Bibles to uh, Hebrews chapter 11. I'll be reading from the New International Version. And if you can quickly read with me. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offering. And by faith, Abel still speaks even though he is dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. By faith, Abram, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land, 
Like a stranger in a foreign country, he lived in tents as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was unable to bear children because she considered him faithful who made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abram, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced uh, the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offering, offspring will be reckoned. Abram reasoned that God could even raise the dead, and so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be ill-treated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and the application of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land, but when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the army had marched around them for seven days. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawn in two, they were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskin and goatskin, destitute, persecuted, and ill-treated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us 
would they be made perfect? A long portion of scripture, but an interesting one all the same. Setting the scene to what we are going to talk about this morning or this afternoon, we continue with our study of the book of Hebrews, like I said, and the speakers before me have covered the first 10 chapters. And the author of the letter has in these chapters taken time to painstakingly explain to the readers the transition from the old covenant to the new covenant with an emphasis on the fact that Jesus is better. And picking some pointers from the chapters that we have studied in the last two weeks, chapter 9, verse 11 to 12, when Christ, but when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, says that verse, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. In chapter 10, verses 21 to 23, the, the listeners were encouraged with the words that say, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with a full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. To emphasize on the teaching he has made so far, the author of the Hebrews in, in, of this book uh, uh, of Hebrews um, uses a new methodology of giving examples to support his message. He chooses to use examples of patriarchs and ancients that the listeners could identify with to drive this message home, illustrating that even these uh, ancients anticipated the coming of this new covenant and of this new order. And the question that I, uh, you and I should be asking ourselves today is, what is the Lord saying to us from these scriptures, to us at K3C at this time, and also to us as believers in the year 2020? Why has he orchestrated it that we are studying this portion of scripture at this time? In the next few days, we will be celebrating Easter, the single most important, important event in Christianity that completely changed the trajectory of fallen humanity forever. Why are we hearing what we are going to hear this morning today? It is because the letter speaks to us even today. The Bible records that we were once not part of God's chosen people. We, the Gentile believers, were outsiders in matters faith. However, by this one act, that the author is explaining to the Jewish converts, we have been adopted into the beloved by this sacrifice of Jesus Christ that caused us to become a people. 1 Peter 2.10 says, Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So that like the readers of that day, we too have transitioned from not being a people to becoming a people of God. They transition from the old to the new covenant. The same questions and doubts and fears and qualms that they may have might be the same things that we are battling today as we come to faith in Christ. And so, the examples that are shared in Hebrews 11 should serve as lessons for us, even in our own personal walk of faith. And so, we'll quickly go through some of the verses because it's quite a big chapter and the first thing I want us to look at is the issue of now faith. Verses 1 to 6, and I'll pick a, a few verses from there. 
We read that now faith is confidence in what we hope for. We read that by faith, in verse 3, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command. We also read in verse 6 that without faith, it is impossible to please God. And these verses provide us with a description of what faith is. It says there, a confidence in what we hope for, an assurance about what we do not see in verse 1. It confirms to us that the ancients were commended for their faith. This is what the author was trying to show his listeners at the time. And in verse 3, the, the, author, the author also wants to show his listeners that even they exercise a level of faith because it says they believed that the world was created at God's command. Because they believed, yet they did not see it with their eyes. They too were walking in faith. He culminates this in verse 6 by saying that without faith, we cannot please God. For the listeners, especially coming for, uh, from a background of salvation by wax, it is imperative that they knew and that we know even today that under the new covenant, we cannot earn our salvation. It is the gift of God through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on Calvary. And so if you'll take out one truth from that first section, it's that only by faith can we please God. If we quickly move on to verse 9, we'll read from verse 9 to 13 a few verses. By faith, verse 9 says, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. The way Abraham and the other ancients lived, as we see in these verses, imputes a sense of semi-permanence here on earth. Strangers, foreigners, foreign country, tents. And yes, we could argue that th this is how the people of that time lived, but I said it imputes a form of semi-permanence. The reason they lived the way that they did is because they were looking beyond their current situation or the current circumstances they found themselves in. The Bible records that they look, he, Abraham, looked for another city, a city that was designed and built by God himself. This was a prophetic word during Abraham's time and the ancients. And so they stood in faith that they would see this sometime in their future. Verse 13 says, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on, on the earth. These people still clung to faith, not having received the promises. That's what the Bible says. And yet, we may ask ourselves, what do you mean they did not receive things promised? Yet, Abel's offering was acceptable to God. Enoch pleased God and he was taken. Noah had the warning and obeyed and saved his family in the ark. Abraham left the country where he was going to, and we know from Scripture that he prospered there. Sarah also, who was past childbearing, received Isaac. Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice, and in a manner of speaking, received him from death because the Lord provided a lamb. Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning their future, and we know from Scripture that it was so. Joseph spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions about his bones, and we know that the Egyptians left I mean, Israel, Israelites left Egypt, and we know that their, his bones were taken. Moses managed to leave the palace and delivered the children of Israel from Egypt, and they passed through the Red Sea on dry ground. Rahab's 
who uh, was saved because she hid the spies. And all, all these others that we read about Joshua, we saw the walls of Jericho. We saw that the walls of Jericho came down. So in a sense, if we are asked, we would say that these people received promises of, of God. But the, skip, the scripture here speaks of things they did not receive physically, but only saw and received from a distance. It implies that there is more than just the physical things. There is more than just what we trust God for and receive that is tangible. Does it therefore mean that perhaps we have a myopic view of faith and have re reduced faith to things that we receive here and now? We've been known as Christians to say, I'm trusting God for a house, I'm trusting God for a spouse, I'm trusting God. And this is what I'm asking us. Do we think our view, when we see these people, might be somewhat myopic just to the things that we ask God and receive tangibly? Looking at Abraham's example, it tells us that he was fully aware of the fact that this was not it, that there was more than just receiving what had been promised to him, that he received here physically. That faith is understanding like Abraham uh, that these things are not an end in themselves, that there is so much more that is better than anything we have experienced of the Lord's goodness thus far. This same verse 13 in the Passion Translation reads, these heroes all died, still clinging to their faith, not even receiving all that had been promised them. But they saw beyond the horizon the fulfillment of their promises and gladly embraced it from afar. They all lived their lives on earth as those who belonged to another realm. They clung to faith, yes, not receiving everything they had anticipated. They did receive some things, but not receiving everything they had anticipated. But the Bible here tells us they saw beyond the horizon to the place where there is a separation between the earthly and the heavenly. Their posture was that of foreigners, of people who belonged to another realm, not satisfied merely with what was promised and received here on earth. What does that say to us today? Are we living lives daily, conscious of the fact that there is a horizon beyond our earthly living? Or are we so taken by the here and now that this reality is hidden far in our subconscious or not even there at all and only surfaces when we are stirred up like we are being done right now? The ancients lived as those who are not of this world, not vested in the things under the horizon. They were grateful for the promises that they received, yes. And they rejoiced at the doing of the Lord, yes. But they were more interested and more vested in the things beyond the horizon. They were focused more on the promises that were beyond the earthly, earthly realm. In their case, they looked eagerly to the coming of the promised Messiah. At that time when they lived, Messiah had not come. Today, we have unfortunately become so vested in the things below the horizon, in the here and now, that we live lives as if this world is our eternal home, no longer as strangers in a foreign land, to the point that we have become no different from those who are not a people of faith. I'm sure many of us can debate this and say that that's not so for me, and that would be great. But if we look good and hard at how we live versus what we see here, then we will definitely find areas in our lives where this is so. 
and that we are being called to change. See, for example, how hard we struggle with the sovereignty of God. Abraham, even though he knew the promises of being a father of many descendants, was to be realized through Isaac. He did not hold him back when the Lord asked him to sacrifice his son. The scripture tells us that he reasoned that God could even raise him from the dead, as in let God be God, knowing that his plans and purposes shall for a fact be accomplished. That is confidence in the things hoped for and an assurance of things not seen. Nothing, or should I say no thing, held Abraham strongly, this side of the horizon. What holds you strongly today? Or asked in, other, in another way, what are the strongholds in your life, in my life? Is it fear of tomorrow? Of COVID-19 and its economic effects that possibly will have a ripple effect on our businesses, on our jobs, the health threat that it brings, the expectation that believers maybe should be exempt, yet that not, is not quite the case on the ground. None of us is exempt. Yes, we can pray and trust God. But also I ask myself when we pray, if then we believers don't want to be affected, do we want the non-believers to be the ones to go this way? Are we looking beyond the horizon if our answer to that is yes? At such times, we begin to ask questions. Why, Lord? And the issue may not be so much that we are asking questions, as I'm sure the ancients may have done. The issue is in our, in our surrendering to the fact that God is in full control. Abraham surrendered, even Isaac's life, knowing that the Lord was in control. And so we too must allow, as we pray, his kingdom to come and his will to be done in our lives and situations without trying to work it out in our own strength. So, these ancients are examples to us to show us that we must live in tents, so to speak, in semi-permanence, so to speak, cognizant of the fact that this land is not our final destination and look, and look forward to the future promises of God with expectation. That no matter what happens to us here and now, there is a promise of a better life, yet future to us in the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. By the time this letter is written, the promised Messiah that Abraham and the other ancients eagerly waited for had come. Jesus Christ, the only begotten son of the Father. They, however, never lived to see and experience this. Hence the biblical record that they died without receiving the promise. And if we'll take away one, th one truth from these few verses 9 to 13, the truth is that there is more than the here and now. There is another realm that we should be looking forward to. What then is this horizon for those of us who are living after Jesus Christ the Messiah has already come? What lessons can we glean from the examples that have been laid out for us in Hebrews 11? Verse 16 says, Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. He has prepared a city for them. What is this better country you and I should be longing for? The transition that has been described again in chapter, the first cha 10 chapters is from Old Covenant to New Covenant, which has already taken place. 
then if we look keenly at the scriptures and the prophecies that have yet to be fulfilled, then ultimately the next horizon for you and I is the second coming of Jesus Christ for his bride. Revelations 22, 12 and 14 to 14 says, Look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me and I will give to each person according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into that city. How is your life today and mine demonstrating to the world that we are looking for a better country, a heavenly city? If a new list of greats was made for our time, like we see in Hebrews 11, would we make that list as people commended for living a life of faith in our day? In verse 7 of that same Hebrews we are studying, we are told that Noah condemned the world because he heeded the warning about something he had never seen and went ahead to build the ark that saved his family. As we be look beyond our horizon to the second coming of Jesus Christ, are we heeding the warning and walking in obedience to God's commands even though we have not yet seen it? Jesus himself, when he walked this earth, told a parable that is found in Matthew 25. And it says that at that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. And perhaps that's where we are today. We are saying, you've been saying this for the last 2,000 years, where is he? But that scripture goes on to say that at midnight, the cry rang out. Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. God forbid that we would be those who are not ready. That we would be those that have been unwise. The virgins who were ready went in, in with him to the wedding banquet and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly, I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch. Because you do not know the day or the hour. So how should we get ready for the, our horizon? First things first. For those who already maybe are not reconciled to the Father. We need to get ready by accepting through faith the sacrifice made at the cross of Calvary for anyone who will believe. John 3, 16 and 17 tells us that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son to condemn the world but to save the world through him. And what an apt time to make the decision as we celebrate Easter in the year 2020. And I'm asking, will you accept the sacrifice and acknowledge your sins that you may be saved? Are you there? And I'm asking you at home, ask whoever is next to you, are you there? Will you accept 
this sacrifice that we are about to celebrate in the next few days. And maybe even as we just pause before we conclude this word, I would like to pray with anyone who might be there, who wants to give their life to Christ. And I'd like to ask you to quickly say this prayer after me. Lord Jesus, I know that I am a sinner and cannot find my way to the Father without you. Thank you for your promise that if I confess my sins, then you are faithful and just and will forgive my sins and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. I believe that you are God's son and that you died for my sin and rose from the dead. I now turn from my sins, asking you to forgive me. Come into my life as Savior and Lord. In your name I pray. Amen. And if you have prayed this prayer, then you have now been adopted into the beloved and have become one of the people of God. But what is the next thing? That was first things first. We are to live in hopeful and watchful expectation as taught us in the parable of the ten virgins. The Bible also in 1 Thessalonians 5 teaches us that as children of light, we are not to be like the children of darkness. Instead, we are to be awake and sober, waiting in eager expectation for the Lord's coming. We cannot do this if we are so vested in the here and now that we have no time to cast our eyes and thoughts beyond the horizon to the coming of the Lord. And so in conclusion from Hebrews 11 verse 39 to 40, the scriptures there say that these were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised since God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Hallelujah. God's plan was that those ancients, though commended for their faith, would wait for you and I. Are we ready? Are we ready that together we would all be made perfect? Since this is still future to us, the Lord in his mercy is giving us a warning at this time that we need to be ready. And brethren, all that re remains beyond the horizon is Christ's second coming. Jesus is coming again. Jesus is coming again. And if you'll take away nothing else but this one thing in this, in this portion, then you will have heard the word of the Lord. Jesus is coming again. And like I've asked before, the question is, are you ready? Am I ready? Are your loved ones ready? Are your dear friends ready? Is the church of Christ ready and waiting in eager expectation for the coming of the Lord? As you consider the word of the Lord this morning, I'm reminded of the words of the song, Days of Elijah. And I want to pray with us that Lord, in these days that are like the days of Elijah, that you are calling us to. You're calling us to declare the word of the Lord. And that in these days, you want righteousness to be restored among your people. That though these are days of great trial, of famine, of darkness, of sickness, of the sword, you are still calling us to be the voice in the desert crying, prepare ye the way of the Lord. And so Lord, even as we wait to behold you coming, riding on the clouds and shining like the sun at the trumpet's call, we want to lift our voice and say that this is the year of Jubilee. Out of Zion's hill, salvation will come. 
And so we are speaking to dead and dry bones that they will become flesh. And that the temple once again will resound in praise. And then the Lord is saying to us, people of God, that these are the days of the harvest. The fields are white in our world, ready for the harvest. And we are praying, Lord, that we, the laborers that are in your vineyard, will declare with boldness the word And so, Father, thank you. We thank you that you have chosen. I pray as I pour out my heart these Lord, days. 